Good morning. So last week we went through some of the primary sources um, regarding the mitzvah of Trichacha, the mitzvah of which we discussed means actually two things, but um, what, what the, the meaning that we're focusing on is the mitzvah to rebuke somebody who is doing an Avera. Um, and we saw the Rambam and Sefer Chinuch. Um, let's review a couple of quick things over here. The Gemara in Erechind after Zion of the base talks about, um, says, how do you know that if you see somebody doing something wrong, you have to rebuke him? Shanemar Hecheach Hecheach refers to this Pasuk. Then the Gemara says, how do you know that if Hecheach Veloi Kibloi, Hecheach Veloi Kibel, that if you rebuked him and he did not listen to you, so you told him that you're not allowed to drive in Shabbos, and yet he's continuing to drive in Shabbos. How do you know that you have to continue to um, rebuke him? So the Gemara deduces from the double expression of the Torah, hocheach to rebuke, you shall rebuke. So the double expression teaches us that that you have to you have to continue, and elsewhere the Gemara uses the expression you have to continue rebuking him until um, until he you know until he accepts the rebuke. Um, so you may what about even do you have to do it even if you're going to embarrass him so the end of the puzzle tells us do not bear carry him or do not depends on different we discussed last week different interpretations but the Gemara over here is saying don't do it in a way that will be sinful don't embarrass him in the process and then we saw Bitarfin and Rebbe ben Azariah both say I would be astonished if there was anybody in this generation who knows how to give or to receive rebuke because, and he uses the expression, why do you tell me to take away the splinter from between my eyes? You take away the beam from between your eyes. So already in the, in the generation of the Tanoim, um, the, 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 we find already um, a caution as to how to do this mitzvah, whether or not is anybody who actually knows how to do it properly? And then later on in the Gemara, we have this um, three pronged machloikis as to to what extent, till when is the chiyav of Tichacha. Rav said, Hako, you have to be mechiachim, you have to rebuke him until he hits you, until he strikes you. And we saw that the Rambam changes that and says, not until he actually strikes you, but until he's about to strike you. Shmuel says, until he curses you. And Rabbi Yechonin says, until he reprimands you. Now, so we know that you have to hear him time and again, up to a hundred times and more, until he hits you, until he curses you, until he reprimands you. And there seems to be two ways of understanding what this is all about. One way of understanding it is that the mitzvah of Tichacha, and remember the Gemara says we have hocheach, the one word, and then there's a double expression which teaches you that even if he did not listen to you, so you you, you rebuked him, you fulfilled the first word hocheach, you rebuked him, he did not accept the rebuke, how do you know that you have to continue rebuking him? Tochiach, right? Go, go at it again. So how are we to understand that extra word, tochiach? One way of understanding it seems to be that even if you know he's not going to listen to you, um, 
these these are all already in the Rishonim. We have different opinions over here. Even if you know he's not going to listen to you, you still have to rebuke him again and again, because even though you're not going to change his behavior, part of your responsibility is is to denounce anybody who to, um, who's behaving inappropriately, because you have to demonstrate that you are not part of this rebellion against God. And so so long as he's not hitting you or cursing you or reprimanding you according to different opinions, you have to continue demonstrating that you do not want to be part of this rebellion against God. And that's why you're continuing to rebuke him, not because you want to necessarily change his ways. You know it's too late, you can't change his ways. Another way of understanding it seems to be that no, that when we say what that means is that you have to continue um, rebuking him again and again, um, not because you have to do so even though you're not going to change him, but because you, the fact because the Torah is telling you that you never really know 100%. Maybe even though um, he didn't listen to you, maybe if you continue um, doing it again, not in an embarrassing way, but in a meaningful way, maybe you will be successful, and that is true until the point where he's about to hit you, or about to strike you, about to cur- he's cursing you, whatever it is, then you know, okay, now that's it, it's all done. And the two sources that we saw, the primary sources that we saw last week seem to indicate according to this second way. I'm not going to find the text right now, but um, we, we saw these texts last week, and we saw the way the Rambam defined the mitzvah was that the mitzvah is like zero lamutov to change him, to bring him to the right path. And then he said that you have to continue doing so until he's about to hit you. And similar in the Sefer HaChinuch. So it appears from their formulation that the mitzvah is to, to, um, to, change, to influence the person to change his ways, to stop driving in Shabbos. And um, the mitzvah to do so, and, and so long as he hasn't, isn't actually about to strike you or about uh, cursing you, etc., according to different opinions, then there is, I guess, some iota of a chance that you might be affected. Now, how do we paskin about this? So I'm going to show you, and this will do on the screen over here, um, two halachas in the Altar which will then, after we read them, we will compare them. So number one, this comes up in the laws of Yom Kippur. Um, where there the discussion is about um, people who don't realize that the mitzvah is to um, actually accept Yom Kippur a few minutes before sunset. So he says like this. Following principle applies in a situation in which women eat and drink until the actual beginning of Benash Moshes, that's at sunset, unaware that it is a mitzvah to add time from the mundane realm into the realm of holiness. So you have to take some time of Erev Yom Kippur and add that to Yom Kippur. If one is certain that his warnings will not be heeded and they will continue willfully, he should not reprimand them. Better than that they transgress unknowingly than knowingly. So this is the principle of Mutav Shayir Shaykhigin that um, that if you if you know that they're not going to listen, then it's better not to reprimand them because if they're not going to listen, right now they're doing an avera b'shogeg, they're doing a, a, an avera unknowingly. 
if you tell them that they're not allowed to do it, but you know that they're not going to listen to you, so then not only have you not improved the situation, but you've made it worse, because now they're violating this mitzvah knowingly. However, um, this principle, which we call we don't, it doesn't apply in all situations. This principle applies to all prohibitions that are not explicitly stated in the Torah. But A, were derived by the sages through the principles of exegesis, or were received as a tradition passed down to them as laws taught by Moshe early in Har Sinai, so halacha uh, Moshe Sinai, or were ordained by the sages themselves. If a person unwittingly violates the ruling of the sages because he did not know of the prohibition, and even if he were to be informed, he would not stand corrected, there is no obligation to remind him. On the contrary, it is preferable for him to transgress unknowingly than transgress knowingly. So let's say somebody doesn't know that you're not allowed to talk in the middle of Kaddish, um, and you know that it's unlikely that he's going to change his ways if you teach him better, then there's room to say, don't tell him. Okay. However, with regard to a prohibition, and this is where it comes relevant to our discussion here, with regard to a prohibition explicitly stated in the Torah by contrast, one is obligated to reprimand the transgressor even if one knows that he will not accept the rebuke when he is formed of the prohibition. So Dr. Rebbe seems to be going with those opinions um, that uh, even if you're not going to have any effect on him, he's going to continue driving in Shabbos, you still have to rebuke him. The rationale is that all of Israel are responsible for one uh, for each other, and by reprimanding the transgressor, one frees himself of this liability, right? So that's like the idea I said before. It's I'm responsible for him, and therefore it's my responsibility to um, detest what he's doing and to demonstrate that I am disagree with, I don't agree with this type of behavior, not because of something that I'm going to change about him, but because it's my duty to express my disdain for somebody rebelling the will of Hashem, the command of Hashem. Nevertheless, one should not remand him publicly more. One should not reprimand him publicly more than once. One should not repeatedly reprimand the transgressor publicly once he is certain that the transgressor will not accept his rebuke. With regard to such matters, it was said that just as it is a mitzvah to say something that will be heeded, so is it a mitzvah not to say something that will not be heeded. So this statement from the Gemara, which we saw also last week, just as it's a mitzvah to say something that will be heeded, so is it a mitzvah not to say something that will not be heeded. Is a Gemara in Yevamos, and there's the different um, poskim with different approaches to this whole topic that we're discussing today. So everyone places this somewhere else in the discussion. Under which circumstances do we say that it's a mitzvah not to say something that will not be heeded? So in this context, the Alter Rebbe says that what this is referring to is not to repeatedly reprimand somebody publicly if you know he's not going to accept his rebuke, but it doesn't exempt you from, according to this interpretation, it doesn't ex exempt you from reprimanding him the first time, because it's necessary to reprimand him the first time, um, rep reprimand him the first time in order to uh, free yourself of the liability of and it's also necessary for you continuously to do that. You have to continuously reprimand him, but not publicly. In private, by contrast, one is obligated to reprimand the transgressor even a hundred times until the transgressor berates him. So that's like the third of the three opinions until he reprimands you, until he berates you. Since he informed him of the transgression and he continued to willfully violate it, each and every member of the Jewish people is obligated to rebuke him. As it is written, you shall surely rebuke the, the double verb, the dual verb implies that one must reiterate the rebuke even a hundred times. 
Okay, there's more, but we'll stop here. Now I want to show you, we're going to read together um, elsewhere. This is in the laws of Yom Kippur, it's al Rebbe in chapter 608. And then we have the al Rebbe in chapter 156, where um, we'll see what seems to be quite a different take on this whole topic. Um, chapter 156 is the laws of um, desired patterns of business involvement and other ethical directives. Okay, so we go here to see Zion number seven. It says as follows: If one sees that his fellow man is sinning or is following in an undesirable path, it is a mitzvah to guide him back to the good and to inform him that he is wrong for, wronging, wronging his soul through his evil deeds. As it is written, you shall surely admonish your fellow. Now here, there are already decisively two differences between here, between this one, 156, and what we saw earlier, 168. Number one, here the Al-Tarebbe adds a stipulation that it is his fellow man. In Hebrew, his friend. So, and we'll see soon, the Al-Tarebbe um, underscores that even more. So somehow here we're limiting it to um, uh, somebody who's a friend of yours. And B, we're adding that the mitzvah is to guide him back to the good. To return him to a good path. Again, no mention of an obligation to rebuke him just for the sake of um, sort of clearing your own responsibility to detest something being done in violation of Hashem's command. Now, if the wrongdoer Somebody asking a question over there? Um, if the wrongdoer does not take heed, one should admonish him again, as implied by the dual verb, even hundred times, until he sh- the wrongdoer strikes him or curses him. So again, here we have another decisive difference between 156 and 608. In 608, he did pass in like the third opinion in the Gemara that you have to rebuke him until he reprimands you. And here the Al-Tarebbe brings both of the other two opinions until he strikes you or he curses you. So another difference. And then one is obligated to admonish only a chaver, a comrade, um, a colleague with whom he is familiar. I think gaspoy means more than familiar. Gaspoy means that you're comfortable with him. You have a comfortable relationship with him. One is not required to admonish another person who will hate him and seek revenge, if he admonishes him for such a person will certainly not listen to him. So whereas in 608 we were saying that even if he doesn't listen to you, you still have to continuously do it, though not in public. Um, here, as lo- basically it seems clear that if there's no chance that he's gonna listen to you, then there's no, there's no further need to re- continuously reprimand. With regard to his friend, however, if it's somebody who you do have a close relationship, by contrast, even if one knows that he will not listen to him, one is obligated to admonish him, unless the sinner is transgressing unknowingly. In such an instance, we follow the principle of like we said before, that um, under certain circumstances, we say, if he's not going to listen to you anyway, and it's not a biblical, it's not something that's explicit in the Torah, then better that they, they do it um, unknowingly. And soon we're going to review, come back to review this this paragraph, but um, let's continue the discussion here. So we have these um, different approaches and um, what are we to make of all these contradictions 
between the very same author, the Alter Hebbe, and Shulchan Aruch in two places, seemingly taking two very different approaches. And this is not just in the abstract, this is very practical. When I see somebody um, driving on Shabbos, if I see somebody coming to Shul, and he's putting on his talis around, as we're learning in the Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch, the laws of wearing your talis. Um, so I see somebody who comes to Shul and wears his talis around his neck, like a scarf, instead of the way it has to be spread out over his whole body. So am I obligated to every single Shabbos go and tell him, my dear friend, have a good Shabbos, and very respectfully, I want you to know that the way you're doing the talis, wearing your talis, you don't fulfill your obligation. It's not kosher, it's brachal batala, this is really bad. Right? Do I have to do that or not? Now, we did put in the title about throwing rocks at cars on Shabbos. I think that we'll see soon more about more about that. But either way, I mean, we'll see soon more about the... Perhaps we could differentiate a little bit between the responsibility of an individual and the responsibility of sort of the community. But one thing is clear of the Sisa al that certainly the first time you reprimand somebody, um, that it must be done in a way that's respectful and doesn't embarrass him and humiliate him. Now, if he doesn't listen to the first admonishment, then there may be room to um, to embarrass him and humiliate him, um, as we discussed last week. That um, certainly, if it's something between if it's something between man and and God, and he is not listening to the rebuke done in a respectful private way, then we go even in public and we humiliate him and rebuke him, etc. So if you see a Jew driving in West Rogers Park or on Shabbos, and you certainly can't throw rocks or humiliate him, you have to first have a nice conversation with him. The question then becomes, once you've had a nice conversation with him and you've told him that you're not allowed to drive on Shabbos and he continues listening, do you throw rocks next week or how do we continue? And this is really the, seems to be, um, uh, Obviously, not just a, first of all, it's not an abstract question. This happens all the time. And um, also, yeah, it's, there seems to be these contradictions. Now, as you can imagine, much has been written over the years in various halachic journals to try and determine these things. And specifically within the Chabad journals, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to figure out how, what do we do with these contradictions between the two places in the Alter Rebbe Now, Part of the discussion is actually very fascinating and historical discussion um, because um, we know that the Alter Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, there's a number of things that the Alter Rebbe changed the way he ruled, the way he passed on later on in life. The Alter Rebbe originally started writing the Shulchan Aruch on the, um, as an instruction of his Rebbe, the Magad of Mizrich, and certain parts of the Shulchan Aruch were even, I mean, perhaps even the bulk of it, but certain parts of it certainly were completed in the lifetime of the Maggid. And the Maggid passed away in Tovkuf Lamed Gimel at 1773 or 1772. I don't know the English date of Zutas in that year. I see probably, probably December of 1772. And so um, most of the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch was written in the late 1760s and early 1770s. We know that later on in his life, the Alter Rebbe wrote other things. He wrote the Madura Basra, the later edition of certain parts of Shulchan Aruch that came to us. He wrote the Siddur, and there's numerous things that the Alter Rebbe changed his mind about in the later in his later on in his life, which basically was um, three things. Um, first of all, the way the, the, the way the Alter Rebbe's children write about it is that Hosef Chachmal Chachmasei became much wiser, and one of the things that he changed was that. Um, whereas early on in his life, he relied very heavily on the opinion of the Magen Avraham. Um, in, later on in his life, he 
um, he was more at liberty to rely on other opinions differing than the Mogan of Ram. Another difference is that later on in his life, he relied more on Kabbalistic sources, even in Paskading Halacha, than he did early on in his life. And of course, thirdly, there were manuscripts and Sfarim, which he got hold of later, hold of later on in life, famously Shavasarashpa and other things which he did not have earlier on, and that also affected his opinion. Now, so we know that the bulk of Shulchan Aruch and Al-Tarebbe wrote in, again, as we said, in the late 1760s and early 1770s, and that includes Simon Tafrish Ches, the laws of Yom Kippur. Now, this, the simonim that we're learning, that, 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 um, that, that I would, the other simon that I showed you, which was simon, uh, chapter 155 and 156, the, so those, those two simonim, 155 and 156, first of all, just open up in Shulchan Aruch in Hebrew and English, you'll see right away that the style of those two chapters in the Alter Rebbe is very different than the rest of Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch. There's a lot of notes and parentheses. It's, 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 it's written in a very different style. And so the historians, um, Rabbi Shulam Munshain and many others have demonstrated quite um, convincingly that those two chapters, 155 and 156, were written much later in the Alter Rebbe's life. And I'll just go through some of the primary proofs to that. Number one, in chapter 155, the Alter Rebbe quotes Hilchus Talmud Torah. The Alter Rebbe, in addition to the Shulchan Aruch, he wrote a separate four-chapter booklet called Hilchus Talmud Torah, which the Rebbe actually encouraged to learn. The Rebbe uh, reprinted it, I think, a couple of times. Um, so that Hilchus Talmud Torah was published in 1794. Um, so that's uh, 30 years later. Then, then he wrote the rest of Shulchan Aruch. That's when it was published. And it seems, again, as the scholars say, that the Alter Rebbe wrote it um, close to the time that it was published. So in chapter 155 of the he quotes Hilchus Talmud Torah. So it would appear that those two Samanim of Shulchan Aruch were, were authored approximately 30 years later than the rest of the Shulchan Aruch. He also quotes the only time in the entire Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch where he quotes the Primo Gadim is in chapter 155, and the Primo Gadim was printed for the first time in 1785. So again, at least 15 years later or so, then he wrote the bulk of the Shulchan Aruch. Um, now, another interesting note that the Rebbe makes is that it, it, it appears that there is a, the final section of Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch is called Cheshem Mishpat, where it's Halachas Etzrichas, it's not the full-blown Cheshem Mishpat with all the monetary laws of witnesses and Dayanim, etc., but it's, it's um, sort of day-to-day -day laws, monetary and interpersonal things that are important to know. And it appears that um, 155 and 156 were written at least similar in time to that because they are cross-referenced. And um, in Cheshem Mishpat, where the Al-Trebbe talks about the laws of uh, uh, letting go of a debt, because of Shmita, he says um, that he says that Shmita was, he gives an example of 1784. Um, so... So the Rebbe points out that we can deduce from there that Cheshav Ishbet was written in the late 1780s. So again, this is all putting the time of authoring 155-156 in the late 1780s and early 1790s. Um, now it's also interesting to note that um, the Shulchan Aruch, the Al Rebbe Shulchan Aruch was first printed in 1814. And then many prints um, followed in different print houses with different editions and edits, etc. Chapters 155 and 156 first appeared 
in the 1856 printing of the Alter Rebbe that's 50 years after its first printing, with a note that we found these additional two chapters in manuscript. So again, further pointing to the fact that those chapters were written much later. Now, if all of what we just said is accurate, then we could say that, look, um, the Alter Rebbe has changed his mind. Whereas in chapter 208, he held that um, you're obligated to reprimand somebody not time and again um, uh, uh, until only until he reprimands you, but time and again, even if you're not going to have any effect on him. Um, later on, he changed his mind and he said that no, we're only obligated to do this mitzvah if you actually have a serious um, chance to um, to influence him, and this would address many, most, if not certainly many of the changes. So for example, the fact that in chapter 156, the Alter Rebbe emphasizes that it has to be your friend, somebody who you're comfortable with or acquainted with, have a good friendship with, etc. That's the type of person who you're going to have to, um, who you're going to have to um, reprimand. Also, he changes from reprimanding to cursing or hitting. Now think about it. If you're just walking up to a stranger and he reprimands you, then okay, you've done, you've already done it. Again, there we're talking, not talking about influencing him to change. We're talking about making your point that you're, dem you're demonstrating against the violation of the will of, uh, will of Hashem. He's reprimanded you, that's it. You've, you've demonstrated it enough. But whereas in chapter 156, he's talking about talking to a friend of yours, to somebody who you're good with and you know, and you're trying to influence him to, 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 to you know, to stop biting his nail, you know, to stop doing something wrong. So there, just the fact that he reprimands you, I mean, between good friends, you could say something sharp to somebody else, to, to the other part, to the other friend, and that doesn't mean your friendship is over, right? You may still have a chance to influence him. But once he's cursing you or about to strike you, now that's when the friendship itself is on the line and you're no longer his friend and you no longer really have an opportunity to, to change him. Um, this, and also, like I said before, the changes between 208 and 156 also match up very neatly with moving away from the Psakim of the Mogan Avram, with relying more on the Kabbalists, for example, in the Zohar and in the Shalah and other Mokabalim, we find that they pass in like the opinion that you have to rebuke him until he's about to hit you. So the, the changes make a lot of sense. Another very important thing is Paraklamid Beis and Tanya. We're going to see in a minute that in Paraklamid Beis and Tanya, the Altenev also severely limits the scope of the obligation to rebuke. Now, Paraklam and Beis and Tanya, um, even though Tanya was written much earlier, Tanya was written, uh, Tanya was written much earlier, Madura um, Bakama certainly, but Paraklam and Beis, the, the 32, the lave or the heart of the Tanya, which is all about Avish Yisrael, really in the, in, in the, in the map of Tanya, it's, it comes in parenthetic, it's by the way, it, it's, not, it's talking about um, learning how to treat your body as secondary to your neshama. And the Al-Tarebbe-Paraklamid base says that, by the way, a side benefit of that is also that it enhances Avish Yisrael. Now, Paraklamid base was not there. If you look in the Madura Kama of Tanya in the first edition of Tanya, which again, the Rebbe printed, um, Paraklamid base doesn't exist. There's only 52 chapters of Tanya. And Paraklamid Gimel was written um, much, sorry, Paraklamid base was written and inserted into Tanya much later. And again, according to the historians and scholars of early Chabad history, it seems like Paraklamid Base was written around 1796. Again, right around the time, a few years after we're putting the authoring of chapters 155 and 156. 
So if we are to find that paragon and base of Tanya fits with what we're saying now about chapter 156, then that is awesome. And indeed it does. So let's look at paragon and base of Tanya. In Tanya, paragon and base, I was talking about how it's a mitzvah to um, to love Abba Yisrael. And he's extending the limits of this very strongly that really everyone and very all-encompassing mitzvah. And then the Alter Rebbe says, well, hold on a second. The Gemara says that if you see your friend doing an Avera, then it's a mitzvah to hate him and also to tell your teacher to hate him. So how can I, the Alter Rebbe, suggest that it's a mitzvah to love every single Jew under all circumstances? Um, it appears clearly from this Gemara that, it's not, that, that, that there are certain situations where it's a mitzvah to hate somebody. If somebody's doing an Avera, you must hate them, right? So the Alter Rebbe says a, a number of conditions. In order for it to be a mitzvah to hate a Jew, there has to be a number of conditions met. Number one, it has to be somebody who is a um, who is your colleague in Torah mitzvah. So I'm going to read to you the notes as they are from Lessons in Tanya, and this part of the Lessons in Tanya was written, taken from the Rebbe's um, edits. Rabbi Weinberg used to submit to the Rebbe the, 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 the notes for his um, for his radio show of the lessons in Tanya in Yiddish, and the Rebbe would edit it. And here's how the Rebbe interpreted this chapter, this part of chapter 32 of Tanya. The sinner in question is a Torah observant scholar, but has lapsed in this one instance. In this case, his sin is much more severe than usual, since it is written that even the Shkogos even the inadvertent misdeeds of a scholar are as grave as deliberate sins. Right? So only only somebody who is a scholar, who's a, who, 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 who's a knowledgeable person, only then is it a mitzvah to hate him. However, the Alter Rebbe then adds that even in such a situation, um, it's still not good enough to be hate him because maybe he's inadvertent. Now, even though it's true that an inadvertent sin of a, of a Talmud Chacham, somebody who should know better, takes on the severe, assumes the severity of a deliberate sin, as the Alter Rebbe explained in the previous chapter, in chapter 31. Nevertheless, the, even this general assumption of the gravity of his conduct is not sufficient cause to hate him. The Alter Rebbe continues, yet another condition must first be satisfied. You have to know that this specific sin that this person is doing is not just considered as grave as deliberate sin because he should know better, but it's actually a deliberate sin. How do you go to know if it's actually a deliberate sin? Because you've already fulfilled the mitzvah, you've already fulfilled the mitzvah to rebuke him. Um, which means to rebuke somebody who's with you, who's your colleague in Torah mitzvah. Nevertheless, he has not um, repented from, he's not returned from his sin. As it says in Sefer Haredim. Now here, remember before we had this Gemara Nibamas, which says that it's a mitzvah not to say something which is not going to be heard. Here the Tzabach Tzedek in his notes in Tanya refers us to the Mahasha, and that Gemara where the Mahasha suggests that because we have the word um, rebuke your friend, right? So that the mitzvah of rebuking only applies to somebody who is your friend. And within the word friend, there could be two interpretations. It could mean somebody who is your friend, as in Chaver B'Tarim, he's also a from observant Jew as you are. Or it could be somebody 
who you have a good relationship with. Now, there's some discussion about this in the if in the Chassidus Muveris and Tanya in the back. Um, he he goes into some de- uh, he goes into he analyzes this uh, greatly, but I think that. Uh, the point being, the point being that you you only have to rebuke somebody who there's a chance that you're going to be able to influence them. So there's two there's two types of friendships that could lend themselves to that scenario. Number one, if he's a good friend of yours, so even if you're from and you live an observant lifestyle, but he's not. But if you have a very good friendship with him, then you can influence him to also start accepting the observance of terminus. And similarly, um, if um, if you don't have, you don't know him at all, but you, um, but you're both from Jews. So, you, so then there's a certain camaraderie that's that's almost taken for granted. So just for example, you would never walk over to some stranger in the street and tell him, um, you know, that his collar is 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 bent up. Not because there's anything rude about that, because he's a stranger. You don't know him, and it's not your business whether or not his collar is is, is bent out of shape. But you may very well be dominating, be on vacation, be traveling somewhere, be in a shul where nobody knows you and do, you don't know anyone. And somebody might come over to you and say, you know, your tefillin are not straight. And not only would you not be offended, you would be appreciated that the person helped you fulfill the mitzvah of tefillin properly. So, if somebody's a from Jew, even if you don't know him, then there's still a chance that you may be able to influence him to better his ways. And there's a certain camaraderie just in the in, in that and the fact that you're both devoting your lives to, to, to serving to, to serving Hashem and to following Torah mitzvahs, that that would also lend itself to that um, to that uh, to, to the mitzvah. Somebody and here here the sort of says a double uh, two things, which will, would appear to fit nicely with the interpretation I just said. That somebody who is a not your friend and b not close to you. So there could be two things. You could be your friend as in that you're both, quote, belong to the same party. Yeah, you're both um, observant Jews. Or you could uh, you could have a, a friendship with him. So then not only is there no mitzvah to hate him, but there's no mitzvah, but, but on the contrary, you have to be mekar of him, you have to really try to, um, to, to influence, to, to draw him near, to be nice to him and love him. And either, possibly your love will indeed cause him to become closer to Torah mitzvahs, and even if not, it doesn't matter, he submits his avastrayim. So, I'm about to upset the apple cart, spoiler alert, but it appears from Kufnun Hay, from Kufnon Vav, sorry, from the Alter Rebbe's later opinion, both in Shulchan Aruch and from his interpretation in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe is severely limiting the scope of um, the mitzvah to rebuke somebody only to somebody who you have some sort of affinity with, and somebody who there's a realistic um, there's a realistic uh, prognosis that you may be able indeed to influence him. However, however, in the Tzemach Tzedek's notes on Tanya, the Tzemach Tzedek doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be very happy with this. He doesn't seem he doesn't seem to um, you know he quotes a number of sources 
uh, for halachic sources that seem to suggest that it's very it, it's very difficult to limit the scope of so much. And indeed, in numerous sikhas and letters from the Rebbe, we find also that he is very um, he's, uh, he's 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 seems to be questioning this um, this maskama, so to speak, this takeaway. Um, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe doesn't talk about it in the context of Simon Kuvn and Vav of 156 and Shukhanar. The Rebbe is talking about it in the context of Periklamet based in Tanya and invoking the note of the Tzamech Tzedek and sort of the Rebbe really doesn't seem very comfortable with this takeaway. Now, it doesn't affect the, the message of Periklamet based in Tanya is not affected by this because the message of Periklamet based in Tanya is of that part, part of Periklamet based, the way the Rebbe explains it is that in the mitzvah to hate somebody who's doing something wrong is only when, when, when he's somebody who is in general a firm person. So he does he does the right things, but there's one case where he's deliberately doing something wrong, and you know it's deliberate because you've rebuked him. And it's it's kind of a it's a very rare scenario that somebody should be committed to eternal life, but insist repeatedly on doing something wrong, even though he knows it's wrong. That's the only case where there's any mitzvah, and even then, Alter Rebbe says there's a mitzvah to hate him, and there's also a mitzvah to love him, as elaborated on Perakam and So the Rebbe's, and the Tzemach Tzedeks, and the Rebbe's sarachion, discomfort with this, with, with the, that detail of Perakam and doesn't affect the overall message of Perakam and But both the Rebbe and the Tzemach Tzedek don't seem to really go with this, that there's no, um, there's no mitzvah to rebuke somebody if, uh, if, if he's not your friend, then you don't it doesn't seem likely that you will have any effect on him. Um, so let me go through a few of the, some of the sources and then I'll share with you what I know about this. So, or what I think about this. So number one, again, just some random examples, there's obviously many more. There is, in the back of Chilik Chof Aleph of Bukotisichus, there is a long, uh, there's a long, quite a number of pages, the discussion about the rabbi explaining why he's getting involved in the whole question of Mir Yehudi, of who is a Jew. And one of the things the rabbi says over there is that uh, even if you know, the, he quotes the Gemara in Shabbos, which seems to be saying that you don't really, you can never really know that what you're saying will have no effect. Um, but even if what you're saying will have no effect, the Rebbe says it's, the Rebbe is saying it's my responsibility, uh, and this is a long discussion of a number of pages. But the, the Rebbe is basically saying that it's my responsibility to voice very loudly my opposition to what's going on in Eretz Yisrael with the law of return, with who is a Jew controversy. Um, okay, in. In the back of there is a that was there is a long uh, a few pages also response to the challenges of Mifzat Tfilin. So in 1967, uh, in a few weeks before the Six Day War, the Rebbe initiated the Tfilin campaign, and there was much opposition voiced from various factions of the Orthodox community. 
And in the back of there is a few pages of his response that I'm going, you know, question number one, why do you choose Tefillin? Answer. Question number two, why, um, what's question number two? And um, what's the point, of, what's the big deal if so you got something to put on Tefillin only one time? Et cetera, et cetera. There's a total of, uh, I think, four or five questions, is it? And then, four questions. And then the Rebbe says, um, you know, Al Khan's questions to answer that were received. Um, and now I just want to make the general point that, that the mitzvah is to rebuke. And here the Rebbe says that the mitzvah is to rebuke, even if you know that it won't have any effect. And it quotes out Rebbe Shulchan Aruch in Simon Tafish Ches, that we saw the laws of Yom Kippur, chapter 608. And then the Rebbe says that anyway, it's irrelevant because now once we've had so much weeks of experience with Miftah's film, we see that that's not the case anyway. And then the Rebbe quotes this, the Haggadahs of the Samach Tzedek and Tanya and Sarachi and Gadl, that it appears to be very difficult to justify what the Alter Rebbe is saying over here, that there's no mitzvah to rebuke. To, it's, it's difficult to square that with all the sources we have in the Gemara and the Paschim, etc. And the rabbi seems to be leaning towards that there isn't a to rebuke, even if you're not going to have an effect. What's very interesting over here is that here the rabbi is not talking about what we call rebuking. When he's not talking about making demonstrations. Again, in Simon Tafresh Ches, the way you, the simple reading is that even if you know you're not going to have an effect, it's your obligation to protest that, to demonstrate that you are detest this violation of the command of Hashem. Here, the Rebbe is sort of, if you will, translating that into modern terms and saying, go over to the guy and offer him to put on tefillin and tell him about this opportunity and the importance of this mitzvah. So the Rebbe is sort of putting it in the cloak of the mitzvah to rebuke, not in the cloak. Yeah, the Rebbe is saying that, how do you fulfill this mitzvah to rebuke? On the one hand, you have to do it even if you know he's not going to listen to you, not like the Rebbe says in Tanya. But at the same time, the Rebbe is not recommending going out there and making demonstrations. The, the Rebbe is um, recommending to do it in the way of offering somebody to put in film, which I find very interesting. Now, this very same note of the Rebbe, which, as I said, was printed in the Kutisichas in the back of Chedekwa, was copied and pasted again in another Sikha uh, later on in Chedekwa, and there's one line added to this footnote, the way it's printed in Chedekwa Medalev, in Pashas Kudet, um, which is C. So let's look at what the, in other words, the rabbis seem to be saying that these shuvas uh, from the Minchas Yitzchak are very relevant to the rabbis' point. Now, if you look at those shuvas, the Minchas Yitzchak was Rabbi Yitzchak Weiss, who later on became the Rav in Yerushalayim, but these shuvas were written in Tavshin of Gimel in 1963, when he was the Rav in Manchester. And it's interesting that most of these, the bulk of these shuvas are actually, of these two shuvas, of these two that the Rebbe quotes, um, are in response or analyzing very respectfully the shuva written by the Satma Rebbe, Rebbe Yoel of Satma. And the question then was that there was a certain individual who was, who was an expert in building mikvahs, and he was called to a certain town, to a big city, he doesn't say what the name of the city, he was called to a big city to build a mikveh. Now this was a city which never had a mikveh, and there was no established orthodox community over there, 
But for some reason, it doesn't say why they wanted to build a kosher mikveh there. And uh, this would save people from the tariff of entire summer shmokha would be a tremendous thing. However, the question that he asked the Satmar Rebbe, were, and that the Rebbe is now quoting from Minich Shitzchak and Lukot is, is it appropriate for me to help these people who are completely not observant to build a mikveh? This will maybe um, give them some sort of heksher and may even um, cause other people who wouldn't otherwise consider tempted to be moving to that town. Here you have a town which everybody could, you know, nobody's going to, if you don't dress sneers and if you don't keep the rules and you don't go to Minya, nobody's going to look your way. I could never move there because there was no mikvah. Now there's a mikvah and I could I, I could move there. So this would be tempting to get more from people to, to move there. And that would be, quote, bad for the Jews. So he asked the Satmir Rebbe what to do. And the Satmir Rebbe told him that he must build a mikvah there. And, but it seemed like the Satmar Rebbe was insisting that Rav, Rabbi Weiss, the Minchus Yitzchak, would review the Teshuvah of the Satmar Rebbe and um, show his own opinion. And this is a lengthy tshuva of the Minchus Yitzchak, where he um, confirms the opinion of the Satmar Rebbe that the mikveh must be built. And again, under the, he taught, there's a lot of discussion here of that you must rebuke. And, one of the things that's interesting is that he quotes this Gemara. He brings many sources here from earlier. And there's one source that he brings from Megdoyle Reb Hirsch, Reb Hillel, I don't know who this is, Maskel Aldal. And he says, he was a Hungarian, one of the great rebukers. And over there, he's talking about this, uh, this, um, the obligation to rebuke and to help people, um, even if they're not you know, observant, that you must, if you're able to help them be observant of a mitzvah, then it's very important to do so. And he brings, the Minuch brings a number of sources that this Gemara that we said earlier from the Tarfan and uh, I think it was the Bronze of Nazaria, that nowadays, already in the times of the Mishnah, there's nobody who really knows how to rebuke properly and nobody knows how to receive rebuke properly. God forbid, chas v'shalem, to take that literally at face value that now there's nobody needs to rebuke. Um, how could you even consider the notion that there's a mitzvah in the Torah that no longer applies? Um, rather, basically, that mitzvah, that, that Gemara is supposed to be taken as encouragement that because there's always the setback, that if you tell somebody to improve his ways, he'll tell you why you're telling me to remove the splinter from between my eyes, remove the beam from between your eyes. So those Gemaras are to be taken as encouragement to make sure that you are okay, to polish up your own ways, so that your rebuke will be more effective, but not to be taken in any way as an excuse to throw the mitzvah out the window. And interestingly, he quotes Abu Dirham, that Abu Dirham asks the question, why do we not make a bracha? Before you're about to, to tell somebody that he's not doing a mitzvah properly, you should say, Baruch Hashem, Right? Why don't we make a bracha? So the Barbanel quotes this Gemara that Tamei if there's anybody who knows how to rebuke properly, and he says that's why you don't make a bracha because maybe your rebuke won't be effective. So the Minchasmitzvah says you see from that Abu Dirham that he doesn't say that that Gemara gives you an excuse not to do the bracha. You have to do the bracha, but that Gemara is the reason why you don't make a bracha because there's actually legitimate concern that maybe your rebuke will not be effective. So this is the this is the Minchas Yitzchak that the Rebbe quotes as part of underscoring the Rebbe's Tzarech Ion together with the Tzemach Tzedek 
on this idea that the Rebbe says in Paraklam the base of Tanya, which severely limits the scope of the mitzvah, and then Samach Tzedek and the Rebbe are further expanding the, the scope of the mitzvah of Hechech Techech. However, um, we should not forget, and we talked on this last week, that the the any type of rebuke has to come with absolute with absolute Abbas Yisrael and I'll just give you a number of references where the Rebbe discusses it, number one is in in the Sikha of Parshas Nayach, famous Sikha where the Rebbe talks about the Gemara that the Torah goes out of its way um, to say not to speak badly, it says the animal which is not pure, it doesn't say the impure animal, um, even though in English, in English that's the same thing, yeah? English doesn't have a word for not pure, we just say impure, but in Hebrew we don't say tome, we say um, and the Rebbe talks there about, so the Rebbe quotes over there from the uh, Naim, I think, that from the Shem Baal Shem that if you see somebody else doing something bad, it's a simon that there's something bad in you and it's like you're looking into a mirror and if you see dirt on the face of the reflection in the mirror then chances are there's dirt on your face so um, unless it's a movie so um so the rebbe asks the question over there what do you mean maybe you're seeing something because you have to fulfill the mitzvah of rebuking your fellow and the point that the rebbe makes over there and i strongly encourage people to look up the sikha it's a beautiful sikha is that when you see somebody doing, doing something wrong what do you see do you see something wrong? Or do, is all that you see the opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah of If you see, in fact, we, say, we gave the motion last week when somebody has dust on their jacket. Do you see that this guy is a shlump? Or do you see that, you know, you have to dust off your jacket? So if you see somebody doing something wrong and you see that as a chesar and as something wrong with that person, that's what the Meirinayim is talking about. That's when the, the dirt on the mirror is probably the dirt on your, on your own face. But if you see something doing something wrong, you don't see it as something wrong, but you see it just as a, an opportunity to fulfill mitzvahs and to help other people, people fulfill more mitzvahs, then that is the appropriate way. Another, another important, uh, interesting thing where the Rebbe talks about this is in, in Pashas Mois Tavshin Aleph, where there was a certain individual in Eretz Yisrael who um, was reprimanding the Jewish people and telling them another Holocaust is coming and uh, this was on the eve of the Gulf War, etc. And the Rebbe spoke out very sharply against him. And then there was, the comeback was, well, what do you mean? The Jewish prophets always spoke um, harshly to the Jewish people. And the Bali Musar, etc. And the Rebbe made, makes a number of points, um, again, very, we're running out of time, so I don't want to go into all the details, and I highly recommend you look it up. It's Parshish Moistosh and Aleph. Um, but uh, again, the Rebbe makes the point that, first of all, you're not a prophet. If the prophet, if God tells you to say something, then you have to say it. Um, but if God didn't tell you to say anything, you don't have to say it. And even within prophets, we see that there were certain prophets who avoided saying such things. Again, a long discussion in the footnotes of that sikha. And concerning the Bali Musa, the Rebbe insisted that uh, that any harsh words that were said to the Jewish people by uh, qualified Bali Musa were said out of the deepest love for the Jewish people and they included themselves. It wasn't talking down at them, but they included themselves in the community of people that has to um, better their ways. 
And one of the places the Rebbe also quotes, uh, refers to Eiratera of the Magid. And a very interesting word from Eiratera, uh, from the Magid of Mezrich on this, um, that he brings a Pasuk with the Maim Chazal um, that says, those who abandon the Torah praise the Rasha, and those who, who guard the Torah, Yisgaru um, translates as Reitzan, uh, how do you say in English? They, uh, they, they um, the, the, the guarders of the Torah, they upset, or whatever the word is. What's the Hebrew word? Yisgaru. Sorry, the, the English word is slipping my mind right now. Yisgarabam. But the guarders of the Torah, they they fight with them. So again, a, a long piece of it, but the, basically what the Magid says is that there's two approaches within 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 those who serve Hashem. There are those who praise the Russia figuratively, which means that they don't rebuke the Rashaim. Rather, they try to be nice to them and they um, they 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 find merit and try to, to, to find merit and excuses for the people who are not keeping the Torah. And then there's the Shemit Torah, those who say, no, what do you mean? How could you stand by idly and quiet when uh, somebody is violating the Torah? And the Magid basically makes, says how there's, there's value to both of these approaches. And that's why the, the conflict over here is between these two schools within people who are good Jews there's these two schools of thought, and both of them have value. So certainly, there's a tremendous challenge in fulfilling this mitzvah. On the one hand, we're saying that it's very all-encompassing. And on the other hand, we're also saying that it must be done with the utmost and respect and love and no personal vendetta and no has to be void of any um, personal feelings or, or, or negative feelings or thoughts about the other person. So it certainly becomes... Um, a challenge, and whilst I certainly don't have a sort of clear-cut answer for every situation, but it's certainly something which we constantly have to be aware of, the challenge between, on the one hand, it's our responsibility to do as much as we can in this direction, on the other hand, we also have to make sure that we are fit. Um, before we sign off over here, another one more very important point, and that is that the Rebbe's uh, in a number of places that the Rebbe talks about, oh, sorry. So before we say this other point, this I alluded to this before, I want to go back to reading this last um, piece of the Shulchan Aruch over here. To whom does the above apply? Again, this is from chapter 56. To a private individual who is admonishing others. The rabbinical court, by contrast, is obligated to admonish and rebuke transgressors so that they themselves will not be held accountable for that sin. This applies even if the prohibition is a matter of doubt, and even if there are many who transgress knowingly. The court should not evade responsibility by saying better they transgress unknowingly or knowingly. Um, there is an exception. Okay, yeah, right. So basically, the limit, here earlier in 156, the Alter Rebbe limited the scope of the mitzvah. But then the Alter Rebbe says that the Bezdin, they have a more broader responsibility. And I want to suggest that perhaps, you know, we talk about a Besden, and nowadays we don't have a Besden in that, in those ways that the Besden have authority and monetary, and the Besden could issue decrees and fines, and we don't have that nowadays. But 
in the Tshuva of the Minchas Yitzchak that, 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 that I mentioned before, that the Rebbe references, there's a long piece over there where he talks about Shluchus de Kamoi Avdinon, that even though there's no Bezdin, um, we are there to fulfill, we, we, are, we are somehow agents of the theoretical Bezdin or agents of the Bezdin of days of yore. And so maybe change the word Bezdin for a community or leaders. And perhaps this is what the Rebbe is saying over here in when he's talking about Miftzat Filin and referencing this Tshuva of Minchas Yitzchak. And in other letters, there's one specific letter printed in the back of the Zion, where the Rebbe is writing to a certain Rav, again, a leader of a community who wanted to make Aliyah to fulfill the mitzvah of living in Eretz Yisrael. And the Rebbe told him that your responsibility to your community is overriding, even if you think your responsibility, your community won't listen to your to your rebuke, you have the responsibility to stay there and continue rebuking them or to continue teaching them and guiding them. And perhaps the same can be said about the Rebbe's call, for example, the example we gave was Mifzat Tfilin, that the Rebbe as a leader of the Jewish community and each and every one of us, as the Rebbe coined it, Shluchim, that we all you know, we all, the, the rabbi sort of charged us with his mission, so to speak, that even though you may make the case that on my personal responsibility by the letter of the law, it's not my responsibility to go out there and seek seek to influence others in, in, in the direction of Torah and Mitzvahs. And I may, again, strictly by the letter of the law, just keep to my own business. And there may be indeed be halachic justification for that. But the rabbi is pushing the envelope in the other direction and empowering, like Jonathan Sachs famously said, the Rebbe didn't want followers, he wanted leaders. The Rebbe is empowering each and every one of us to assume the position of quote unquote, the Bezdin, who, whose obligation it is to, to stand in the forefront to, 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 to promote the agendas of Hashem and of Torah and Mitzvahs. Okay, I think that brings to a close my thoughts about this topic. So again, I don't necessarily have the exact recipe and answer for every time you see somebody wearing the talis over his neck instead of spread out properly um, when the correct time and how the correct process is to um, to do it. And like we saw before from the market, there are two legitimate schools of thought and two legitimate, legitimate approaches. Um, but overall, certainly, for us, the Rebbe strongly encourages um, going in the direction of being as involved as possible in influencing other people to do mitzvahs properly, and at the same time, doing things in a way which is coming from absolute Avot Yisrael, and like we saw the Hayyam Yom last week, that if the rebuke is not successful, then you must attribute the failure to yourself, that you were not um, as loving and as caring and as impartial as you ought to have been. Okay, so you're asking a very important question. And the question is basically, when we're trying to influence people to experience Judaism, and it may involve inviting them over for Shabbos, even though you know they're going to drive, and how do we approach, how, what do we do about that? So it's a very complex question, a very complex topic. We've actually discussed this in the past. Um, a few years ago, we did a few classes on that topic. But again, it's a balance. In fact, there's one place in the Kutusichas where it's published where the Rebbe said 
the Rebbe admonished the Shliach for having people drive over to him on some Chastorah, and the Rebbe said, next time put an ad in the paper that if you're going to drive, better not to come. Right? So that's one aspect. On the other hand, similar perhaps to, in, in a similar spirit to what we said before about if you know he's not going to listen, better don't tell him because then you're just going to make it worse. Now he's going to be doing the same Avera Bemezid uh, deliberately instead of indirectly. So Rabbi Shalim Zalman Eibach makes the case that the, the, the mitzvah, and this goes over a little bit from the, I mean, they overlap, the mitzvah to rebuke and the mitzvah of the to put a stumbling block before the blind. And Rabbi Shalim Zalman Eibach says that you have to have the overall picture in mind. So for example, he says, if you have, he's talking in Israel, where often you have, you may have con, you know, construction or other laborers in your house who are Jewish. He says, are you allowed to give them a drink of water or offer them something to eat? They're going to eat it without a bracha. You're not allowed to give somebody something to eat if he's going to eat it without a bracha. And Rosh Hashanah makes the argument that actually you're going to do much more to the furtherance of their um, observance of Yiddishkeit by offering them water and showing them that you're a mensch um, than by not offering them water because you're going to insist that they make a bracha. And so um, that would be an argument of the, in favor of inviting somebody for Shabbos, because even though he's going to drive this time, but the hope is that he's going to continue coming and eventually he's going to learn to appreciate Shabbos and that's the only way forward. Now, that's a very dangerous waters to step on because usually we don't make these calculations. We have to do what God said, even, you know, in times when, you know, well, I think it would be better for Judaism if I give women aliyah, so count women to me, and obviously we don't do that. So it, it certainly is delicate waters to tread and um, individual cases should be um, discussed with a competent, local competent, orthodox, knowledgeable rabbi. Um, what you certainly, like you alluded to in the question, was you offer them a place to stay. That's certainly helpful. Um, what, another thing that you could do, it becomes more challenging in the winter, but you can um, invite them to come before Shabbos. Um, so if, certainly in the summer, even in the winter, sometimes it can be done. Now everybody's working from home anyway, so you could then you could just ditch work anyway. Um, so you tell them, you know, Shabbos comes in, at, the sunset is at 4.20, tell them we're going to start at 4 o'clock. And so like this, at least the way that you've, they, they come before Shabbos, and then your Shabbos meal is going to be so inspiring, you'll knock them out, and they'll just fall asleep on the couch, and they'll stay with you till the end of Shabbos. Please, God.